If we uh, are sinners and we live in a world broken by sin, in every conflict, even when our feelings are hurt, if you believe what the Bible says about you, that means that you are at least partially at fault. Now, some of you in here were thinking, well, how can I tell who's wrong if I don't know what they were arguing about? And that, uh, if, that, that's your, if that's you, then you don't, you don't understand this quite yet. In every conflict, in every bro- broken relationship, there is wrong on both sides. And, um, and understanding that and adopting that attitude in the relationships you have and in the conflicts you have is what I would call putting on humility. Now, normally when we talk about humility, all right, we're talking about, we're thinking primarily vertically, me and God, right? Humility before God is admitting, man, I'm a sinner, right? I have not done what God requires. I need a savior. I need rescue, right? C.S. Lewis called humility the, the ultimate Christian virtue, the most important one. Um, but at 1 Peter 5, and you don't have to go here. I'll just, I'll just quote the verse. Uh, 1 Peter 5, I think it's verse uh, 8, says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So notice the humility there is not primarily vertical. It's horizontal. So it's a humble posture, not just before God, but before the people you're around. Um, so this outworking of admitting who you are before God uh, the practical implications is that you admit who you are in relationship to other people. And notice uh, one more thing about this verse. It says, put on humility. So uh, just get this morning, okay, you guys woke up, and guys probably spent three or four minutes, girls probably spent a little bit longer, figuring out what you were going to wear today, right? Okay? Uh, if, you were, if you're really intent about getting to church on time, you, you figured it out last night, okay? But you decided, what kind of clothes am I going to wear today, right? What am I going to put on? And uh, the language of this verse adopts that. So the idea here is humility is not something that you're naturally clothed with. And um, putting on humility, like the clothes you wear, is intentionally adopting this posture. So what does it look like practically? Okay, A couple of things uh, in relationships about putting on humility, and particularly in relationships between the girls and the guys here. Okay, First, um, this is going to be a little offensive, okay? Uh, Putting on humility uh, will mean that we will stop seeking to use one another and start seeking to bless one another. Um, unconsciously, it is very easy to walk in a room and, and just live like you're the most important person in the room. What matters is how people treat me, if they notice me, if they're validating me, right? Um, and uh, that is all well and good, right, as long as everyone else is meeting your needs, but the moment they don't, that's when conflict arises. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? It is your desires that wage war within you. The idea there is that we want something from each other, whether that's validation or feeling good about ourselves or an easy person to talk to, okay? And when we don't get it, it causes us to fight. So putting on humility uh, is going to stop doing that. Let me, let me get real, real up in your grill, okay? If you walk into this room, uh, as a single person, and you put people into categories of like, ooh, good looking, ooh, not good looking, ooh, dateable, ooh, not dateable, okay? If that's, if that's how you see people here, you're using them. You're using them to, to fulfill your own desires. And that is where a lot of our conflict comes from. So putting on humility uh, will look like, instead of walking in the room and thinking, how are people treating me, we're going to walk into the room and think, how can I bless them, Right? Instead of, instead of trying to find the easy people to hang out, we're going to try to be the easy people to hang out with, right? 
Instead of getting, we're going to give. And the ironic thing about the Christian life is that uh, when you adopt this posture, you actually get what you were looking for in the first place, meaningful relationships, honor, blessing. Um, more particularly, okay, uh, let's say you're in conflict with someone. What does it mean to put on humility when you're in a conflict with someone else? Um, Jesus gives this famous passage in Matthew 6 about taking the plank out of your eye when you're trying to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay, and the idea there, all right, is a person who sins against you has a speck in their eye, right? They've got something clouding their vision. They're doing something wrong, okay? But your posture of thinking, well, they offended me. They're the wrong ones. They're the idiots. That, in Jesus' word, is a giant protruding two-by-four in your eye, okay? The posture that you are the victim, that they're the perpetrator, that you are the sinless angel, and they are the one doing wrong, that your actions and thoughts and attitudes have not contributed to the conflict, that is the plank in your eye. And so putting on humility looks like if right now in this room there's someone you are, you are err towards or whatever about or struggling to gossip about, okay? Putting on humility looks like the first thing I'm going to do before I speak another word about this to anybody, before I maybe go to them or before I forgive them, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chew on what have I done to contribute to this conflict? That's a basic posture of humility, of admitting, man, I am not Jesus, right? Like, I'm not sinless. I've contributed, okay? So, first, don't be a weenie. Second, put on humility. And again, I just encourage you guys, right? You come home, church, you're talking to your roommate, and they're like, man, I just can't believe he or she did that today. This is, you know? Hey, wait a second, all right? All right, take a breath. Just ask, man, are you putting on humility? Are you sure you haven't done something to contribute to this? All right. Go to Jonah 2, all right? God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. I was reading the Proverbs. It's Proverbs 14. It says, uh, humility comes before honor. God honors the humble. All right, so we're walking through Jonah. And if you were not here last week or need a refresher, uh, Jonah has been a very rebellious and disobedient prophet. God speaks. He runs away. God speaks some more. Jonah refuses to listen. Things have not been super well. And Jonah 2, all right, we're going to hear uh, Jonah's thankful prayer for deliverance after God rescues him, okay? But uh, I want to ask a question. It's a brief survey of the class as you guys are still trying to find Jonah. Um, so minor prophets are tough. I understand. It's fine. Remember, Hosea, Joel, and Amos's tale. Obadiah, Jonah, and the belly of the whale. Okay, that's it. All right, uh, so uh, survey the class. Is it okay to make fun of or ridicule the prayers of other believers? No. No circumstances whatsoever? Okay. What about this? All right, let's say you're at a missions conference and you hear this stirring, rousing, powerful sermon about missions, Okay. Revelation 5, people from every tribe and language and tongue, God's huge global purposes for the world, okay? And uh, one of the responses the uh, pastor gives uh, is you're going to get in small groups and you're going to pray for the nations, all right? And here, here's your buddy's prayer sitting next to you. Here's what he says. Dear Jesus, thank you here that here in America we have the freedom to worship and hear your word. Thank you for your blessing and grace on America, that you love America, that it's your nation, Please bring America back to where it should be. Is that a prayer we should ridicule and make fun of? Really? He just heard a mission sermon 
about God's global purposes. And he talks about God's exclusive love for America. Sounds like a Babylon Bee article to me, right? Okay? All right? What about this, okay? You're in your community group, all right? You got a buddy. He comes to group, and he, he shares with you that he lost his job, okay? And uh, he tells you the story. You're like, oh, man, I'm sorry, man. He tells you the story. And he spends the first 10 minutes talking about how terrible his boss was, just the most awful, horrible person in the world. And, uh, and they're like, well, how do you get fired? And you go, well, yeah, I, uh, I blew up on him and screamed at him and told him he was the worst person. You know, I just, I, I just yelled at him for five minutes, and he fired me. And uh, it's time to pray. And uh, after you guys all just intercede for him and pray for him to get a new job, he prays that God would rain coals down on the wicked, on his boss. Okay? Is that a prayer that we can make fun of and ridicule for his good? You guys are too nice. Okay, here's the thing, all right? Here's the thing, okay? Whatever, whatever you guys think about what I just said, okay? Whatever you think about what I just said. That's so mean, Leland. Oh, my goodness. Jonah 2, all right? Jonah 2, this, this is a book of the Bible that's satire, all right? It's exposing someone's folly and ridiculousness for the, for, the, for the sake of moral change, okay? Jonah 2 is exactly that. We have a real historical prayer recorded from Jonah in the belly of the whale, okay, that this, the author of this book is ridiculing and making fun of because it is so blatantly unrepentant and against God's purposes, okay? And it might be offensive that that happens in the Bible. However, I think after we study this prayer and we dig into it, you will see why it is worthy of our laughter. And you might see why we might need to laugh and ridicule our own prayers, okay? So here we go. Let's read uh, Jonah 1. We'll start in verse 17, just to recap how good God's been to Jonah. We'll read all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. So chapter 1, verse 17 to 2, verse 10. Here we go. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the, vi the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, um, this is a uh, complex passage, and uh, we just ask for your wisdom. Uh, we ask you to help us to understand um, what you are speaking to us about here. Help us to see just, um, again, how, just like Jonah, we experience your deliverance, we're thankful, but we still are not repentant. I just pray you'd speak to us and change us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
I encourage people generally to uh, pay attention to the things that make Jesus sound all hardcore. Um, for example, there's a parable in Matthew 18 about a servant who owes his master an inestimable debt. It's 10,000 talents, modern-day currency, about $6 billion. All right, so let's pretend that you owe someone $6 billion. There's no such thing as bankruptcy, all right? And uh, master is about to put him in prison uh, until he can pay the debt, which would be forever, right? Um, <clears throat> and he begs for mercy, gets on his face, just pleads for mercy. Master forgives him totally. He's off scot-free. You can imagine how thankful he was, right? Like, this is the best boss ever. Like, oh, my goodness. I'm working for you forever, man. Like, Facebook posts, Instagram, whatever, right? Some humble brags in there, okay? Whatever, all right? Um, same servant, all right? And I'm embellishing the story, but you can read it, Matthew 18. Same servant, okay, walks out of his master's room and happens to find a guy who owes him 50 grand, which is a lot, okay? It's like a year and a half the salary, whatever, you know? That's, that's a, lot of, a lot of money, all right? And he begins to choke him. And the guy, who owes him 50 grand, falls down on his feet. He says, please have mercy on me. And the guy says, no, you're going to jail. And uh, so the master who forgave the $6 billion finds out about this and condemns him and throws him in jail for the rest of his life. And Jesus ends the parable with these words. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You rarely hear Jesus get so hardcore about anything in the scriptures. Now, uh, this isn't a talk about forgiveness, but here's a question I want to ask you. What makes God so infuriated by the kind of person who can be forgiven a $6 billion debt but not forgive a $50,000 debt? What, what makes God so angry? Notice in the story, okay, the servant was probably very thankful. He was probably very thankful that the master forgave him, right? The servant did not actually do anything to break the master's rules. Did you notice that? The servant didn't sin against the master. His sin wasn't against his master, right? What, why, is, why is Jesus so angry here? Why is he so hardcore? And the reason is there is something excruciatingly ugly about someone who can receive mercy and yet not give mercy. It is because the uncanny human ability to enjoy God's blessing and mercy and yet not be changed by it one bit is vile to God. And in this passage, it's so vile that God commands a fish to vomit Jonah up. And so we're going to see that kind of prayer here in Jonah 2. Uh, guys, praying is a good idea, but not all prayers are great prayers, okay? And uh, Jonah's, in Jonah's prayer here, we see two main things. First, Jonah is really thankful that God was merciful to him. But second, Jonah's heart has not been changed one lick by God's mercy. He's saved from his trouble, but he's trapped in his sin. All right, let's see that. So uh, just again, uh, verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. If you weren't here last week, this, is, uh, this verse is just full of God's kindness and mercy. Just a little recap. God spoke to Jonah about going to Nineveh. Jonah ran away. Jonah decided he would rather die than obey God, okay? God sent a storm not to punish Jonah, but to teach him. Jonah still disobeyed. He, he had the sailors throw him off the boat, hoping it would kill him and kill the sailors too, all right? He's in a bad place. He does not deserve the Lord's mercy, and the Lord appoints deliverance for Jonah. He saves Jonah, all right? He does all this for Jonah's good, 
okay? And uh, in Jonah 2, Jonah actually does something right, okay? Be encouraged, all right? He, he recognizes uh, that God answered him. It says in verse 2, I, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And he goes on uh, for three or four verses and describes just in great, crazy detail what it was like to be drowning in the ocean, okay? We even hear about the wheat at the bottom of the ocean, all this stuff. Um, but then he says in verse 6, You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He recognizes, he, he, he sees that the good thing that has happened to him has been from God's hand. And how could he not see? A fish literally swallowed him and did not kill him, right? Uh, and then Jonah does actually respond in a way to the Lord. He's thankful. He says uh, in verse 9, But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. So Jonah, Jonah in very uh, Hebraic terms, the way Hebrews will worship, he said, he's talking about how in, in corporate worship, again, he will sing to God with thanksgiving. And he will even, he's even vowed to God. And vows are just sacred promises, right? And uh, most likely, Jonah's probably vowed to go to Nineveh if God commands him to again, which we'll see that happen in, Nineveh, or in Jonah 3. Uh, but he responds to God with thanksgiving. Okay? So um, in Jonah's prayer and circumstances, before we talk about everything that is la- uh, lacking and worthy of laughter here, okay, we do see one or two very positive truths here. Okay? God mercifully delivers Jonah, all right? and Jonah is thankful for God's mercy. Um, he confesses the Lord's sovereignty. He says that God has been good to him, okay? So there's really only two ways to be worse than Jonah, all right? First way is to not recognize God's sovereignty over your circumstances. Notice, the sailors are the ones who threw Jonah off the boat. Jonah's the one who chose to be thrown off the boat, okay? And Jonah says in verse 3, you, God, cast me into the deep. He recognizes that God is in control of his life that God's the one working behind the storm, that God's the one throwing him off the boat, right? The second uh, way that you can be worse than Jonah is to experience God's mercy and grace and not be thankful. This is literally the one thing Jonah does right, okay? It's the one thing he does right. God is merciful to him, he's good to him, and Jonah thanks him. He recognizes that God's been good. He, he says it to God. He responds, he stops. Now, he's kind of had to stop, right, because he's in a, the belly of a fish, right? He has nothing else to do, okay? But he stops what he's doing. He stops his plan. He stops worrying about his life, and he thanks God for deliverance. He gives praise to God and glory to God for it. Um, but again, it's very possible to look at all the mercies of your life, everything from breakfast this morning to salvation forever, and to just pretend it's normal, right? To not say a word of thanksgiving. Uh, there was a pretty prominent pastor who said, anything God gives us, besides immediate death and hell forever, is mercy. And I kind of chew on that this morning if you're looking around at your life and you're kind of depressed about your circumstances. You have been blessed. Breakfast is a mercy. The job you hate is a mercy. Um, God's working through it. So just, just, stop, just stop for a second. In a world full of God's gifts, right, as a Christian, with God's mercy on your life, and be thankful. Do the one thing Jonah did right. Okay? But notice, okay, uh, oftentimes people who are thankful uh, from getting out of trouble are right back in sin when they're not in trouble anymore, right? The plane starts going down, okay? Everybody's praying, right? Everyone's praying that God would save, right? 
Back at cruising altitude, things are great. Back on the landing strip, back to life. You know, I don't believe the Bible's true, right? Um, you know, you guys have probably had moments in your life where, God, if you get me out of this, okay, I am never going to do that again, right? God gets you out of it. A couple months later, right back to it, right? And that's where Jonah is. Um, now, I do want to encourage you. Uh, if, if you don't believe me, right, if you're, if you're a little skeptical about this prayer being insufficient or about the, the morality of making fun of it, just follow along. I, th- I, think, uh, I, think, I think we'll get there, okay? Uh, first, just notice, okay, uh, even being in the belly of the fish for three days was a gift. Uh, just think about this, all right? Imagine yourself, I mean, it's very difficult too, but imagine yourself uh, in the belly of a fish, all right? It's dark. There's no one else there. There's no one else to distract you. There's nothing going on. It's just you alone with your thoughts. Um, God, God has spoken verbally to Jonah in his word. God has given Jonah a very big storm uh, to speak to him about his sin. God has given Jonah some pagan sailors who are acting way more righteously than him to speak to him about his sin. And now God gives Jonah the gift of three whole days of complete quiet to think about it. It's like a divine timeout, right? You know? <laughs> go, go sit over there and think about what you've done, right? And, and that's a gift. And now you guys might think, not think that's a gift, but I tell you what, my favorite part of summer vacation is when I walk into the house at 5 p.m. and I think to myself, where, where is my phone? You know, where, I don't even know where it is right now. You know? I gotta, and like, I've just been disconnected all day and I've been alone with my thoughts. It's good. And God gives Jonah that wonderful gift to think over what has happened. And now we get uh, his response, okay? First of all, did you notice how unbelievably me-centered his prayer was? In eight verses of prayer, the first-person pronoun, which is I, me, or my, is used 24 times. 24 times. Just read a little bit. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. You heard my voice. Then I said, uh, this is verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters went over to take my life. Do you all see that? All he can think about is his experience. He's completely focused on himself. There's not a lick. There's one little sentence about God's nature and character. You can take this prayer. If you, if you line this prayer up next to, say, uh, Psalm 51, which is David, uh, post Bathsheba and Nathan, and you compared them, okay, they are worlds apart. Jonah's not focused on God at all here. He's focused on himself. He even gives himself the credit. You guys notice that? He gives himself the credit for God saving him, right? I called out to the Lord. Uh, This is uh, uh, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, right? My prayer came to you to your holy temple. This this is a, just just imagine this, okay? And I'm going to give a, a semi-graphic example here, all right? Imagine you're a small group, okay? A guy's small group, we'll say that, all right? And, um, and your buddy's like, guys, I got something really cool to tell you, okay? I, we've been doing Evangelism and Connect, okay? And I, I just crushed it, all right? So I was at this strip club uh, Friday night, and um, I was there, and, um, <laughs> and I just had this, there was a guy sitting there with me, you know, we were smoking, doing whatever, right? And, uh, and um, I just had this, I just shared the gospel with him, you know? I was bold, I was clear, I used the little method we talked about, you know, and you're like, wait, wait, wait a second, what do you mean? You were where? You know, that's, that's what Jonah's doing. Why is he in the belly of the whale? Because he has 
shut his ears to what God is saying because his heart is diamond hard to the Lord's love for other people. And he's like, I remember the Lord, you know, look at me. <laughs> like, I did so good. My voice, my prayers worked, right? Um, even more so, okay? Did you guys notice he did not mention or his sin one bit? He didn't say anything about what he did wrong. Did you all see that? That's not here. There's nothing. It's all about how good Jonah did and how tough his experience was, right? He did not, uh, he did not confess sin. The only reason Jonah's in the belly of the whale is because he has an unrepentant hatred for unbelievers. He hates the Ninevites. He's unwilling to share God's love with them. And none of that's here. No recognition of sin, no confession of it. No pleading for God to have mercy on him. Now, this aspect of prayer, of Jonah's prayer, gets a little closer to home, right? Well, the last time in community group, you guys verbally confessed your sins to God together, right? When was the last time you verbally confessed specific sins to the Lord? Finally, uh, if you haven't noticed that this prayer is a bunch of baloney yet, I think this one will get you, okay? Right in the middle of Jonah's supposed thankfulness to God is his little confession of faith here in verse 8. All right, he says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Let me just explain that verse, okay? Those who pay regard to vain idols are unbelievers. In other words, the Ninevites that God called Jonah to go to, the sailors that last week were so nice to Jonah and kind to him and tried to save his life. Jonah's saying, God hates those people, and I'm thankful for that. That's his little confession of faith here, right? God hates unbelievers. Yes. That's what he's praying right now. He's thankful for that. He's saying, no, me. I get God's mercy. Nobody else does. Good. So, in summary, okay, Jonah has been saved from his trouble, but he still loves his sin. In fact, God, after speaking in so many ways to Jonah, he is still diamond hard. He doesn't even recognize his sin yet. He's very aware of his trials and his circumstances. He's very aware of his experience and his prayers, and he has not one lick of knowledge about his heart. And he's not open to God uh, speaking to his heart. He's the Christian who looks at pornography and feels terribly guilty and pleads for God to deliver him, and he gets that deliverance and does not adjust his lifestyle one bit. He's the Christian who comes to church, feels a little dissatisfied for vague reasons, leaves, all of a sudden is very lonely, cries out to God, gets involved in a really good new church, finds some friends there, and starts to feel dissatisfied again. No addressing the heart issues. Time to church shop. That's where Jonah's at. Nothing seems to be able to teach him. Okay. So uh, this prayer um, that I hope has convinced you that sometimes prayers just need to be made fun of, okay? Uh, This prayer um, opens up to all of us the scary possibility that we could be that wicked servant in Matthew 18 that experiences God's mercy on us but is not changed one bit by it. I'm not just talking about forgiveness, right? Um, we, We can be people who God is just providentially working, and he's using our circumstances to teach us about ourselves and to, and to, and to work in our lives. We can be people who, 
who pray through those experiences, who tell other believers about them, and not have a lick of self-knowledge as a result of them, not have an experience of the Christian life. You can have a story as crazy as God putting you in the belly of a whale for three days and still be in your sins. Let me give you an example. Uh, this, so I, I do a lot of uh, new member interviews, and uh, just real briefly, again, join the church is good, okay? But a part of the membership process is after taking the class, uh, people do a one-on-one interview with the pastor, and we just honestly, all we want is to know that this person has a genuine faith in Jesus. We're not talking about huge points of doctrine. We just want to know that they have experienced Christ. They know him. They know the gospel, right? Uh, so anyways, uh, there's this little question uh, in preparation on the sheet that you do for uh, membership is briefly share your faith story, okay? And uh, a person who um, recently came across my desk, not in this room, not in even our ministry, the question was, tell your faith story. And this person told this really cool, miraculous story uh, about how God saved the life of their child when they were born not uh, not being supposed to be able to live. All right, it was this really cool story. Like, I was like, oh, man, these details. Like, you know, I'm getting details about the doctor, well, all this stuff, okay? Um, and that was it. Now, of course, we could do the interview, and I could find out this person actually does have faith in Jesus. But if that is this person's faith story, then they don't actually have a faith story. Do you all see that from Jonah 2? If, if your walk with Jesus is primarily about God doing good things for you in your circumstances. You don't really have a walk with Jesus. God's intent, his purpose for you, the, what the Christian life is about, is God taking you and transforming you from the inside out, from God using all of life, from God using his word to speak to you about your heart, to show you your sin, to show you your need for a savior, you embracing the promises of Jesus by faith, confessing your sin, turning from it, that is the main point of the Christian life. Now, God delivers us from circumstances. We should be thankful for it. It's a good thing. But, but if, that's, if that's you, if that's how you're walking and living, you're sitting in the belly of the whale with Jonah, right? You've had crazy experiences, and your heart has not been changed one bit. Um, and that doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you're not one of God's people, Uh I mean, so here's, uh, it, it might mean that. And listen, I'll say, if, that, if you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't, I haven't confessed a sin in three years. Listen, maybe today Jesus is inviting you to repent. I just read an article in Desiring God about a lady who she grew up in the church and she did college ministry and she married a pastor and they're in this gospel-centered church. He's preaching the gospel. She's reading the Bible. She's discipling women in the church. And she wakes up one day and realizes she's not a Christian. She's doing all these things and she never realized that she really was a sinner in need of a savior. So that's possible. And if that's you, listen, don't, don't freak out. Just embrace Jesus by faith. Trust him. Embrace the truth about your heart. But here, here's what I think. Uh, I think my guess, okay, um, is that Jonah probably went home after all this and either told this story to someone or wrote it down himself with the express purpose of making fun of how stupid he was being, okay? Like, how, how do we get all these details? My guess is Jonah is the one who wrote this book or was responsible for its authorship. And that tells me most likely uh, that Jonah, at some point in time after this experience, repented, right? Um, and and he, he could, he was, a, I think he was generally one of God's people the whole time, just really in a bad place. And so, so what that means is it's possible, okay, that you have the real thing, that you know Jesus, that you're saved. And yet, the 
primary way in which you interpret life is that my walk with Jesus is him getting me the job I need, the, the friends I need, the place I want to live, a spouse, all that kind of stuff, of him providing for me and working in my life. And if that's you, you are in a place where you are blind to what God is really after in your life. What God wants is he wants, whether it's a storm or it's unbelievers acting more righteously with you or whether it's his word or whether it's silence, what God wants primarily to do in your life is to use the circumstances of your life and use his word to speak to you about your heart. Right? So what God does, okay? Uh, God applies pressure to your life to reveal to you who you really are. Okay? He gives you sleepless nights to reveal to you that what you really love is being comfortable and what you really love is relying on your own strength. Okay? He gives you seasons where your desires aren't satisfied, right? To reveal to you that you've never really taken them up to satisfy your desires. He's doing that in your life. Right now, your circumstances, the toughest of them, the most enjoyable of them, what God is after is the transformation of your heart through faith and repentance. He's after you embracing that your circumstances aren't causing your sin, they're just revealing it. And that God's given you the gift of circumstances that reveal your sin so you can deal with it. And I just encourage you, uh, be, be wary of false repentance in your life. And uh, work with the people around you. Okay, Listen, if you have a friend... Now, again, I don't want you to listen to this lesson thinking of your friend, okay? Think of yourself, right? But if you have a friend, you're like, man, like, I don't think he's ever confessed a sin to me in our, my entire three years of knowing him. Like, I, like, we've been in community group, and it's time to talk about our issues, and he didn't talk about nothing, okay? If you know someone like that, my encouragement to you is God is calling you in love to not let that person live there. He's calling you, if you know, uh, if you know someone who can literally say, man, he's, this, is, this is his prayer life right here. All about experience, no, no confession of sin, all about God working in my life. If that's him, right, God wants you to go in love to him. And don't, don't, don't say, hey, man, you're not a Christian. That's not going to go well. Okay, don't say, you're Jonah, right? Don't say that. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe your buddy walks in, and uh, he or she is going on and on and on about their circumstances and about what's going on in their lives and this and this and this and this, okay? All right, you can just stop and ask them a very simple question, all right? Where do you think God is in all of this? What do you think God is up to? in this particularly trying work circumstance, right? What's God revealing to you about yourself through this? We're, uh, we're you know, in Connect, uh, we're talking about evangelism, and we talked about a bridge to the gospel, like a, a question you can ask um, uh, to, to take a conversation in a spiritual direction, okay? The questions I just, I just said, all right, that's a bridge out of Jonah 2 into the Christian life, okay? Where is God in this? What is he revealing? What, is, what would please Jesus right now? Ask your friends. Ask yourself. So, uh, Jonah 2 is a little depressing, okay? He is, and we can be, saved from trouble and still in sin. We can be thankful and sort of obedient, make vows, and yet still miss the boat completely. So, imagine for a second that you're Jonah, okay? Or, sorry, imagine that you're God, all right? I'm sure you have before, right? <laughs> Just kidding, okay? Uh, and you're dealing with Jonah, all right? And you literally, you have rolled out the red carpet for this guy. You've spoken verbally and audibly to him. You've given him a hurricane, right? You've given him pagan sailors who were nice to him. You've given him the belly of a wolf for three days. And still he's talking about other people's sin, right? Still he won't address his own. 
at some point in time, you're like, I'm just going to get some dumb farmer from Israel and send him to Nineveh. At least he'll listen to me, you know? Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let Jonah die, right? We, I, think, I think Jonah 2 should end with something like, and then the stomach acid of the fish dissolved Jonah's, you know, whatever, like, like you know, something like that. Like, that's, if, 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 if we're God, that's what happens. Um, but look at verse, uh, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah still gets delivered from the sea. God is still merciful. Man, if your heart is diamond hard right now, I'm not saying stay there, but I am saying you're not lost. God's still patient with you. He's still working. He's still good. But, uh, but notice, notice how, gets, how Jonah gets delivered to the dry land. Okay, uh, This kind of tells us how God feels about Jonah's prayers. The fish vomits Jonah up. Okay, uh, In a story this well-crafted, we can't, we can't uh, tone down a word like this. Vo- this word literally in Hebrew means vomit. Like it's, it's something is so disgusting or sickening that it makes you throw up. All right? And it's, it's used figuratively, figuratively uh, oftentimes. In Leviticus 18.28, um, it talks about if the people of Israel sin, the promised land, this gift God had given to them, would vomit them up in exile. So the idea is something so spiritually disgusting that it causes someone to retch. It makes God's stomach upset. Um, Eric Mason, uh, who's a great Bible teacher, says this about verse 10. Uh, God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, I still love you. In fact, I'm still going to use you. We'll see that next week in Jonah 3. <laughs> but you're going to stink now. You're going to smell like vomit, you know? And, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying this is in the text, okay? But you think about it. Jonah travels to Nineveh, and every time he goes, he's like, ooh, you know? Like, like he can, every time he does that, like, it's an opportunity to say, wow, maybe my attitudes are disgusting to God. Like, maybe I should repent, you know? God's still being kind. God's merciful to Jonah. But notice, um, and this is the incredible thing about prophecy and about evil people. Sometimes they speak a lot better than they know. Look at the end of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, that is a, a perfect illustration of Jonah's life. God shows Jonah. Jonah didn't do anything to earn God's favor. Jonah has, Jonah has rebelled against God continuously, and still God has set his purposes of love upon Jonah. And this, uh, this, little, uh, this little phrase echoes throughout the Bible. Does anyone know what the name of Jesus means? Oh, man. It means, it means the Lord saves, or Yahweh saves. That's not a direct translation of Jonah's confession, but it's real close, right? His life... His experience in the belly of the well points us towards God owning salvation. The Father planned it, right? He sent the Son who sinlessly and perfectly lived to to secure it. And the Son lived in the power of the Spirit, and when the Son ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit on his people. Salvation belongs to God. Why are you a Christian? God chose you. He owns you. He's going to be good to you because salvation is his. It's not yours. You don't earn it. And uh, as a miniature Jonah, I would just encourage you um, that because salvation belongs to God and because salvation has been won by Jesus, you have resources that Jonah did not have. You have the Spirit living in you. As Galatians 2 says, you have, you, have, you have Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. You have, a, you have a heart of flesh, not a stone. 
You don't have to resist God speaking to you in your circumstances. You can be humble before him. You can change. And God's mercy has been demonstrated in history. Uh, do you guys know who George Mueller is? So George Mueller is very famous uh, for his incredible care for orphans um, in Great Britain in the 1800s. Uh, he is most famous primarily uh, for raising modern-day currency about $100 million, all right, without ever asking for money, right? So what George would do, okay, is he would go into his closet and he would pray that God would give him what he needed to do orphan care. And God would provide. Now, again, you don't believe me? Just go on the Internet, search it. The stories are crazy. The records are crazy. We have all these records of, uh, of Mueller reporting what happened in his orphanage. He never once makes his financial situation known. He never once asks for money. And, uh, but here's the crazy thing about Mueller, okay? Anybody know what he did growing up before he became a believer? He was a thief. He stole. He defrauded people so he could live in pleasure. There's all these stories about him. He's stealing from his dad, stealing from the government. Uh, he, he would go to hotels and uh, pretend he was going to pay and then just, like, skip town. So, he, so, so God, God takes this guy, okay, who's a thief, who steals from others, whose heart is so bent on himself, right, that he, he's just going to steal to get what he wants, okay? And he takes him and through his mercy transforms him, not just into a guy that gives his life away, but that so trusts in God's power to provide, all he does to provide for thousands of orphans is pray. Guys, those are the resources available to you. Wherever you are, however hard your heart is to the Lord, whatever you're dealing with, those are yours. Take them up. Let's pray. Lord, uh, just thank you um, for this honest picture of sometimes how our prayers can be. Um, We just pray that you would enable us to see what you are doing in us through our lives, that you would give us the wisdom and the sensitivity to you to not, to not just focus on our hardships or our blessings, but to focus on the God who speaks to us through them. We pray, pray do good work now in Jesus' name. Amen.